Like Anna Lynn said, we're excited that between now and Easter on Sunday mornings, we're going to walk through the short New Testament book called Ephesians. And I'm confident that this book has a lot to say to you and to me, that God wants to speak through this book to all of us and to speak into our life situations. So that's why we have uh, created these resources to help you. But of course, it takes kind of two to tango, right? In order to hear from God, you've got to want to hear from God. You've got to turn your ear toward God. And so I'm asking if over the, the next few months, you would just maybe make it a priority in your life to participate in these worship services with us and to, and to listen to uh, all these sermons. You've heard the saying that you get more out of something the more you put into it. You've probably said that to people. Somebody said that to you at some point in your life. And that applies to uh, uh, this book of Ephesians too. The more you put into Ephesians, the more you'll get out of it, which is the whole point behind the, the resources that we've created for you. That devotional workbook that you received when you walked in, the idea is that tomorrow you would uh, maybe spend a few minutes reading through that and reading the scriptures each day of the week leading up to next Sunday. If you're watching online today, you can always pick up one in the office this week, or you can find a digital copy at uh, our website, just on the front page. So we also have small group resources If you're not in a small group, can I just make a plea to you? It's almost too late. It's not too late yet, but it's almost too late. Please hit the QR code in front of you. Please sign up for one of the previews. It would just help you understand better about what small groups are and allow you to decide if it's a good fit for you. And let me tell you the answer, it is. Okay, good. Uh, So next week we dive in in the Feast of Ephesians. Today we set the table looking at one verse in the book of Ephesians, the first verse, 1-1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we get two things out of here, right? Paul wrote it and he wrote it to a church in Ephesus. That's the God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So what we have to understand is that all the Bible, including the book of Ephesians, was written for us, but it's not written to us. Does that make sense? The book of Ephesians is written for us, but not to us. So if we're going to understand what what God is saying to us, then what we have to do is understand a little bit about the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote the book, as well as the city of Ephesus, which is where this church was located. So let's just start with Paul. Who is he? Now, when you start to read the New Testament, and by the way, about half of the New Testament was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, a little less than that. So when you start to read it and you find out who Paul is, one thing that's real confusing right out of the gate is he goes by two different names. And we're not certain why. One name is Saul and the other name is Paul. The best guess is that Saul is his Jewish name and that Paul was his Roman name, which was very common for people in the Roman Empire to have two names, one of their ethnicity and one that was more uh, a Roman. So, so when Paul writes this book, this, this letter to the city of Ephesus and the church there, he's a mature Christian, right? He's a, he's a Christian leader. But all that was really uh, recent in his life. 
You see, he had grown up in a devout Jewish home, and later in his life, he had become a, a very strict Pharisee. You've probably heard of the Pharisees. They were one of the prominent religious groups active in the first century. But what you might not know is that there were two schools within the Pharisees. Both schools were named after well-respected rabbis who had uh, recently died. One school was called the Hillel School, named after Rabbi Hillel. And it had a live and let live approach to faith. They took the law very seriously, the Torah, the Jewish law, but they didn't play into the politics of Rome or the politics of the religious leaders. They, they said, I, I'm just going to mind my own business, follow the law. Nothing else matters. The other school was named after Rabbi Shammai, and it had a different approach. It was very uh, strict in faith and really in all matters. And they had the attitude that, that if we're going to really be serious about our faith, then we have to be separate from the Gentiles. We have to get out from under the oppressive power of Rome. They didn't want any Gentile interference in their Jewish faith. Well, Paul was a member of the school of Shammai. Not just was he a part of the strict school. He was on the stricter side of the strict school. Maybe the best way to help you understand what Paul was like before he started following Jesus is to introduce you to a guy named Yigal Amir. Here's a close-up picture of Yigal Amir. In 1995, he assassinated the Israeli prime minister Yitzhak Rabin. This is a, a picture of him reenacting the crime for his court trial. He, he was very upfront. He said, of course I killed him. He was very proud of the fact that he killed him. Why? Well, because Yitzhak Rabin had compromised with Gentiles. And to someone like Yigal Amir, that was forbidden. Yitzhak Rabin had entered into uh, peace talks with the Palestinians. He had signed a peace agreement with Jordan. And the way Yigal Amir and people like him in Israel saw that as compromise, compromising with Gentiles, uh, putting Israel's uh, national identity and security at risk. So Yigal Amir thought he had to protect that. He couldn't allow people to compromise. And he would even be willing to turn to violence if necessary. The news media said Yigal Amir was a law student, and that's true. It's just not what you think of when you think of a law student. He wasn't studying to become a, a lawyer in kind of a, a Western-style court. Yigal Amir was a law student, a, a student of the Jewish law, the Torah. So, so what Yigal Amir thought is that the Torah called him to uh, resort to violence if necessary, to keep his leadership from compromising with Gentiles. All right, so now take all this back to the first century. And, and uh, Yigal Amir has a lot in common with the Apostle Paul. See, Paul thought that the Israelites, the Jews, needed to keep the law faithfully. And if they did, then God would return and overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire. He thought that, that if they disobeyed the law, if they compromised by, by uh, making relationships with Gentiles, that it would delay God's return and God's judgment would come on Israel. So imagine you're Paul, and that's your belief system, and you hear there are Jews who are turning away from the law to start to follow Jesus. Well, what do you got to do? Well, you don't want to be violent, but if you have to be, 
at least according to Paul's way of thinking, then that's what would be necessary because we can't let people turn away from the law. And, and, and if violence is what you have to do, then so be it. Acts chapter 9. Saul, remember, same guy, Paul Saul, same guy, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that's what they were calling the Christians, they were followers of the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So notice that Paul got permission from all the important people. He wasn't just rogue. Everybody signed off on his mission. And his mission was to go round up these Jews who'd started following Jesus and throw them in prison. Well, what was their crime? Leading Israel astray from following the Torah. He's on his way to Damascus to, to do exactly more of that, to find more people to throw in prison. That's when God shows up in his life. Keep going in Acts 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. See, this is the original Damascus Road experience. This is Paul's come to Jesus moment. Now, is this when Paul converted? Well, not exactly, at least not the way we use the term conversion. You have to remember that, that there was nothing called Christianity at this time. All the people who were following Jesus at this moment were Jews. The word Christian had never even been used before. So Saul not converting from one religion to another. No, he, he saw this as, as God's fulfillment of the story of Israel. He, he never thought he ever stopped being a Jew. He just saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. See, Paul had been loyal to God, but his loyalty had been misdirected. Paul had been zealous for God, which is good, but that zeal was without knowledge. Paul didn't understand what God was up to. So I just want us to pause here for a second and think. Here's a guy who was out persecuting Christians. Here's a guy who wanted the Jews to stay away from the Gentiles. Here's a guy who thought he was loyal to God by the number of people that he kept uh, from, from following Jesus, even if it meant resorting to violence. And he became a follower of Jesus. If you had gone back to the first century and said, okay, I just want to ask you, who do you think here in our community is going to become a Jesus follower? Nobody would have mentioned Paul. It would have never crossed their mind. He's the guy who hates Christians. So what do we take away from that? Here's what we should take away. That no one is outside of the grace of God. That God changes lives. That, that there's no one so far from God. There's no one who's sinned so much. There's no one who is, who is so anti-God that they can't come to faith in Jesus. That means that you and I have no business writing anyone off. It means that you and I have no business stopping to pray for someone. It means that you and I have no business thinking that these people are somehow so different that they can never come to put their hope and faith in Jesus. I mean, our tendency is to maybe go into our workplace or school or wherever and kind of go, well, I know I'm supposed to invite people to church. So who here seems most like church people? Who here seems most like they're open to become a Christian? 
But do you see how little faith that is? That's acting like you and I can assess where people are spiritually. It's acting like you and I can somehow draw people to, to God. But that's not true. Everyone is loved by God. Everyone is made in his image. Everyone is someone that God cares about and wants a relationship with. We don't decide who might become a Christian and who might not. We just love people and tell them about Jesus when we have the opportunity. We treat all people with dignity and respect and give them the opportunity to follow Jesus just like somebody gave to us. I've been having a lot of conversations recently with people whose spouses are far away from God or whose adult children are walking away from God. And it's so easy to give up hope. It's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to think, well, you know, the ship has sailed. But not with God. Not with God's grace. Because God reaches out to the people that you'd never expect Him to and changes their heart. You know what? God can even change your heart. Maybe you came into 2022 and you think, I need to reevaluate. I, I need some new priorities. I want to put God first in my life. But then there's that voice in you that says, well, that's never going to happen. Yeah, that's what you said last year. You're not really going to do that. See, the fact that God changed Paul's life doesn't just mean he can change other people's lives. He means he can change my life and your life too. All right, back to Acts 9. God gives Paul a mission. He is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. So he says, okay, you're going to go to the Gentiles, the people who aren't Jewish. That's your mission, Paul. Now, do you realize how ironic that is? These are the people that Paul hated. These are the people he didn't want the Jews to be around. These are the people who he thought were the losers and the sinners, and, and we got to stay away from them. And now, and now God says, Paul, guess what? You're going to go tell them about Jesus. Wow. See, following Jesus changes the way we should see people. Following Jesus should change the way we see people. God might send you to tell someone about Jesus that you don't really like. Look what Paul says in another letter that he wrote. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What's a worldly point of view? I think here it just means superficial. It means like we, we, we tend to walk into a room and go, hey, well, where are you from? What's your background? What neighborhood do you live in? How much money do you make? What's your job? What's your Enneagram number, right? Are you beautiful? Are you athletic? Are you, can you do anything for me? What's your politics? Vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, mask, anti-mask, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. And what Paul's saying here is that when you start to follow Jesus, it changes the way you see everybody. So you don't regard people from a worldly point of view. You might notice that, but what is primary is that these are people God loves and wants a relationship with. These are people made in God's image. So following Jesus should make us more kind, more gracious, more humble, less critical, less angry. Has following Jesus changed how you love people? Has following Jesus caused you to say, this is a group of people I don't really like, but I want to love them and I want to move toward them. I want to build bridges to them. I want to understand them. And I want to be kind and gracious and give them the benefit of the doubt. Because when you start following Jesus, you don't see people from a worldly point of view. At least not only see them that way. You see them as God sees them. So that's, that, that, that's Paul. He's the one who wrote the book of Ephesians. 
So now let's talk about Ephesus and the church there. By the way, Paul's the one who started this church. And, and Ephesus is a city that's a really big deal. It's a capital of the Roman province there in Asia. So it's a government center, all the movers and shakers. It's an economic hub. So all the business routes, the trade routes, it was on a, so the seacoast. So, so all the ships come in, all the deals are done there. A lot of wealth there. So Paul goes there to tell them about Jesus. And we read about his first trip to Ephesus, uh, you know, on this mission God's given him. We read about it in Acts 19. So here we go. Paul entered the synagogue. So this was his custom. First thing he'd do is go to the synagogue. And he spoke there for three months. He's trying to persuade them about the kingdom of God. So he's not lecturing, he's not berating, he's not condemning, he's not judging. He's persuasively trying to help them see God's plan. Some of them are obstinate. They just refuse to believe. And some of them even publicly malign uh, the Christians. So what's Paul do? Well, he says, okay, it's not your time. This isn't the time that, that God is at work here. Okay, I'm going to go to a different group. That's what he does. He doesn't have his enthusiasm diminished. He just moves on to a different group. And that's what we read next. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in that province of Asia heard about Jesus. So, so again, discussions. He, he, he's just in dialogue. He's listening. He's asking questions. They're asking him questions. Some he probably had the answer to. Some he had to say, I don't know. I got to think about that. And then he came back a couple days later with, with the best answer he had. It's just kind of a model for us. It's not quick. It's not microwave Christianity, right? It's slow. It took two years of him just doing this. It keeps going. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illness was cured and the evil spirits left him. So notice this is extraordinary miracles. This is not normal, not even with Paul wasn't normal. But sometimes God did some things. It's not the normal way Christians, uh, uh, the, not the normal Christian life. It's not what we should expect, but sometimes God does extraordinary things and it seems like here he did them to challenge these evil spirits. Okay, let's keep going. We'll see that come back in a second. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery, or think witchcraft, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to about 50,000 drachmas. So remember earlier, there were some obstinate people who refused to believe, but now Paul's been out there two years at it, just talking to people about Jesus. And of all people, you would have never guessed it, but it's the people know witchcraft. They go, I want to follow Jesus. And I'm serious about this. So I'm coming out publicly. In other words, I'm not hiding this. I'm confessing my sins openly. I, I'm bringing out all the spell books, all the witchcraft books. And I'm burning them publicly. What's up with that? I mean, evidently it was really expensive. 50,000 drachmas is a lot of money. And it reminds us that following Jesus always costs us something. But the burning of the books, it reminds me of Cortez when he lands in South America. Cortez is a Spanish explorer, lands in South America and he gets off. And at one point he burns his ships. And it's a signal to the guys that he's with, look, we ain't going home. There's no retreat here. And I think when they came out and they burned their books, they were saying that I want to, I, I, I'm serious about this. I want to follow Jesus. There's no going back. There's no retreating to my past life. 
I think when they came out and they burned their books, they were saying, look, I know I'm going to be tempted to go back to this, so I'm burning it because I, what I want to show is my devotion from here on is, is I want to go forward to Jesus, not backward to where I came from. I wonder if there's anything in, in your life you need to burn. It may not be a bad thing. It just might be something that, that's keeping you away from Jesus you keep falling back into. I wonder if there's something you need to tell a spouse about or a good friend about or somebody in your small group about as a way of burning it and say, I don't want to go back to that anymore. Well, Ephesus wasn't just an economic center and a government center. It was also a religious center. It, it was where the goddess Artemis was uh, uh, enshrined. Here is a, a picture of a reconstruction of the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And her statue was here. And people would come from all around to worship the goddess. It was said that Zeus dropped the statue in there. That's what the story was. And then what, what would happen is there were these silversmiths and, and image makers, like small business owners who had a, a business around making small versions of the Artemis statue so that people could take those small statues back to their homes and their businesses and they'd pray to them and light candles and put flowers, all as a way of showing devotion to Artemis. But when Paul came through preaching this message about Jesus, this business took a hit. So, so there's a guy named Demetrius. He, he must have been a leader, kind of like a leader in the union. He's a silversmith. And he gets up and gives a speech uh, to this kind of union crowd in the, in the hall. And, and, and here's the speech. Here's what he says. He, he called them together, along with all the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. Now, here's Paul's message that causes them such problems. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So you see what, what, what's happening here is Paul's come in here and he said there's one God and he has made himself known in Jesus Christ. And, and all these little statues that you're making, they're not gods. They're, they're statues made by human hands. And people are starting to say, I want to follow Jesus. He's where life is. He's the true God. He's my hope. He's the one who rose from the dead. And because of that, they're, they're not buying the little statues anymore. And so the, this group of, of, of union workers are, are upset. These group of silversmiths, of image makers, they're upset. And they're saying, look, you believe what you want, but don't cut into my paycheck, Right? So he's, so Demetrius is given this, 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 this big rousing speech saying, we can't let this happen. How do they respond? How does the union hall respond? When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. I mean, the whole city is, is, is chaotic. It's almost like a riot. They're chanting, great is Artemis. And, and, and we're told this goes on for a couple hours. Great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And what's Paul want to do? Paul wants to go into the union hall. He wants to go talk to him. Because Paul says, hey, if God can change my life, he can change a, an idol worshiper's life. And Paul says, look, if God will reach into my life and, and give me faith, and he might do that here. I want to go tell him about Jesus because Paul doesn't write anybody off because he doesn't see them from a worldly point of view, but instead he sees them as people God loves. But the city officials, they go, no, 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 it's too dangerous. 
you, 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 you can't go in there. Don't, don't do it. So the story keeps going. The assembly was in great confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Sounds like social media, doesn't it? <laughs> but here's what I want you to get. Out of the chaos, God planted the church. Out of the chaos, God brought people to faith. The obstinate, yeah, their heart softened and they came to faith. The, the witches, yeah, they saw in Jesus the one who had true power and they came to faith. The idol worshipers, they saw that in Jesus is life, that he is the one God who exists and they came to faith. It's what God's doing here. That's what God's doing through you as you invite your friends, as you come in faith, as you're open, as you turn your ear toward God, you're growing your faith and you're saying, hey, come here because who would have thought that, that in a wealthy community, who would have thought in an educated community, who would have thought in a community that has all kinds of religious options that God would change your life or my life and then bring us together to worship together in the same church. But God is on the move. He's been doing it for 2,000 years and he wants to continue to do it here today. But we must be open. We must be people who buy in, who burn the books, right? Who, who burn the past life and who go all in on following Jesus. We've got to be people who see people no longer from a worldly point of view, but see them as people God loves. We've got to be open that God might be sending us to the liberals, us to the conservatives, us to the them in our life, that we have a heart for Jesus that exceeds our dislike for people, and that we are more gracious and kind and accepting, and that we enter into dialogue and conversation with those around us, not because we've got all the answers, but because we love Jesus, and Jesus loves people, so we love people. That's what God is doing here. It's what he wants to do through you and me. See, the people there in Ephesus, it was a diverse community, much like ours. They didn't have a lot in common other than this. They put their hope and faith in the saving King, in King Jesus. And that's what you and I have in common, right? Is that we both love Jesus. And because we see that Jesus' death and resurrection has brought us life, that's what binds us together. That's why we come back to communion. If you're in person or watching with us online, worshiping with us, I'd encourage you to get a little bread and just take a piece. See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. So if you'll just take a piece of that bread, The bread that we break is a sharing of the body of Christ. Let's say this together. We are one body and we share one bread. We are one body. That means that God has brought us together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, part of God's family. What we share in common is that we are sinners who've been saved by King Jesus. He took some wine and poured it into a cup and he said, this is my blood. Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins. The cup that we share together unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have died together. We will rise together. We will live together. Take and drink.
God is on the move. And Jesus is changing lives. It's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that happens today in our world, in our community, in our families. What I want so badly is for no one here to be left behind. What I want so badly is for, is for this year to be a year for you, for you to more closely follow Jesus, to love him, to serve him, to open your heart to him. I don't know what it, the next step in obedience is for you. Could be going through this devotional workbook and just reading your Bible. Could be resolving a conflict with someone in your family or in your workplace. What's the next step of obedience for you? I don't know, but God does. And my guess is you might have a good idea too. So let's make this year a year that we listen to Jesus, that our hearts are open to Jesus, that we would love him more and more. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday. If you don't mind throwing away your trash on the way out, that'd be a huge help. Take care.